Welcome to the Mental Horizons podcast, which is owned and produced by the therapeutic consulting practice of Virgil Stucker and Associates, LLC, created by Stephanie McMahon and co-hosted by her and Virgil. The podcast shines light on the creative, solution-oriented, and optimistic thinking of individuals who are leaders in the field of mental health care. Previous episodes with associated blog posts can be seen on the website virgilstuckerandassociates.com where the book, The Family Guide to Mental Health Recovery, is also available. If you are a leader or know of a leader who would like to be interviewed on a future podcast, please contact us through this website as well. Hello and welcome to Season 3, Episode 4 of the Mental Horizons Podcast. I am your host, Virgil Stucker. Today our topic is going to focus on how to simultaneously optimize mental health and substance abuse recovery while also achieving physical wellness. Today our guest is Dr. Delia Campan Hendrick, Medical Director of Westbridge in Manchester, New Hampshire. I'm especially excited to bring this podcast because I consider Westbridge as a nonprofit program which represents one of the best options for co-occurring treatment of mental illness and substance abuse in the country. Dr. Hendrick, their medical director, is triple board certified in adult psychiatry, addiction medicine, and internal medicine by the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology, American Board of Preventative Medicine, and the American Board of Internal Medicine, respectively. She completed medical school at Carol Davila University of Medicine and Pharmacy in Bucharest, Romania, studied psychiatry in France, and trained in the United States through the Combined Psychiatry and Internal Medicine Residency Program at Geisel Medical School of Dartmouth College. She's fluent in English, Romanian, and French. Dr. Delia Hendrick, has extensive experience in treating individuals living with serious mental illness, substance abuse disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder, and other anxiety disorders. She is dedicated to the utilization of evidence-based psychiatric and addiction treatments delivered in conjunction with collaborative medical care. A frequent presenter at both national and international conferences, Dr. Dahlia Hendrick also presented and was part of the United Nations International Panel of Experts on Medical and Psychiatric Care of People with Substance Use Disorders. Among her many publications, Dr. Hendrick is co-author of Addressing Chronic Diseases, Health Management Strategies for Use with Behavioral Health Clients. Prior to joining the team at Westbridge full-time, Dr. Hendrick spent 15 years in academic and clinical psychiatry and internal medicine at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. My goodness, what a great background. We welcome Dr. Dahlia Hendrick. Dr. Dahlia, as Westbridge participants call you, it is indeed an honor to speak with you today. Thank you, Virgil. I am delighted to join you and have been looking forward to our conversation. Oh, goodness. And I am so looking forward to this as well. There are so few people that seem to be figuring out how to integrate all of this care that you seem to have focused on so well. 
You know, one of our objectives with the Mental Horizons podcast is to shine light on inspiring mental health leaders such as yourself. We would like to get to know a little bit more about you. Why, Delia, have you chosen your remarkable career of caring for some of society's most vulnerable individuals across three countries? Why? Virgil, the short answer is because people with dual diagnosis are vulnerable and inspiring at the same time. There is undeniable vulnerability associated with mental illnesses. People have exacerbations and chronicity that can impact and alter their relationships, their careers, their dreams. They're subject to poverty, homelessness, trauma, poor health, and even early death. But they're also subject to full, complete recoveries. Their stories are stories of survival and courage. And having seen the face of true recovery, the impact of illness and the impact of recovery on people and their families, one can only get humble and apply themselves to work diligently to help people recover. Medical school instilled in me, I think like in many other healthcare providers, a sense of fairness um, taught me to recognize injustice, to look for the humanity that links all of us as basic human beings and have respect for all human beings, whether they're healthy or ill in their teenager years or in their older years, in power or not in power. And I have found such connections with people deeply gratifying as one can always learn from people if one can listen. And it's truly a blessing to be able to help. Thank you so much. I mean, I hear in your words, deep compassion, a sense of kindness, uh, striving for justice and goodness. Our world does not always provide just, kind, and compassionate care for those who are vulnerable. Thank you so much for sharing those inspiring words, Dr. Dahlia. Indeed, we look for inspiring mental health leaders. We need more of them. And thank you for giving us some of the reasons why you have committed yourself so deeply to your career and this way of life. The preface that I would offer is, in my career that spans some 40 years, you know, I sometimes hear of approaches that are trying to deal with people who have both mental illness as well as addictions. And it gets so confusing sometimes because You'll hear some providers saying, well, you have to deal with the addiction first, or you have to deal with the mental illness first. And I run into so many, quote, addiction programs that also serve mental illness, but if it gets to serious mental illness, not so much. This first question is to help take some of that confusion out of the sense of service provision that exists and to look at co-occurring treatment. So would you please help our listeners to know how and what to look for when they are seeking co-occurring treatment for both mental illness and substance abuse simultaneously? Virgil, thank you for the introduction and for the opportunity to speak about this. Um, As you said, co-occurring illness really means that people live with two illnesses at least mental illness and the substance use disorder, which is also a mental illness. 
the relationship between them is complex and most often it is difficult, impossible to tell what came first. Usually by the time treatment is thought, they are so interrelated that they essentially make a third condition. The co-occurring disorder is a different illness and like all complex illnesses, it requires a complex treatment. As you alluded to, for decades, treatment for co-occurring disorders has been separate and has been seriously falling short of achieving recovery in any dimension. As people were told that they cannot be fully treated for their mental illness until they stop using, as if that was a choice and not an illness, and also that they cannot be treated for the substance use disorder because they have symptoms of mental illness, especially when their mental illness was serious, disabling, and usually includes psychosis. Common sense and then decades of research has, have shown that co-occurring disorders need to be treated concomitantly in an integrated manner by one team able to address all aspects of co-occurring disorders as well as their intricate interrelationship. I will give you the example of Westbridge. This is the treatment organization that was developed to implement a successful research model of integrated care and treats men with co-occurring disorders. When one is looking for a treatment program, um, even if it lists co-occurring disorder treatments, one is to make sure that the treatment program is able to address serious mental illnesses such as schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, bipolar, as well as the substance use disorder concomitantly. At Westbridge, there is a continuum of care and multiple evidence-based interventions. A residential stay, which I really think it's a fundamental component. The residential stay can be three months or, or even more sometimes. And that period of time uh, of structure schedule and clinical monitoring and uh, consistent interventions and sobriety is very, very important for people to really restart some health habits and sleep and kind of start the process of um, early sustained healing also is a very important time for providers to realize better what the diagnosis might ultimately be. Because many people, by the time they get admitted, they've been in multiple short treatment programs or hospitalizations. As you know, the hospitalization nowadays can be five to seven days long and um, psychiatry needs a much longer time to really be able to um, make a good diagnosis, not to mention apply evidence-based interventions. So with the help of structured assessment and a lot of clinical observations on multiple dimensions, people can get, maybe by the end of the, you know, towards the end of the first month, they can get more accurate diagnosis. The residential stay continues then to another treatment, which is assertive community treatment. And that is probably the most successful intervention for uh, people with significant mental illness in terms of allowing or supporting their independence and community integration. Everybody wants to be on their own, to live on their own and um, 
go to work and go to school and be independent. For a long time, historically, people with serious mental illness have been denied those opportunities uh, to the point that they themselves don't believe that they can achieve, um, you know, independent living. But independent living is very, very important and is achievable. And people need various degrees of support, including uh, very intensive support, daily multiple um, interventions uh, at their home. And assertive community treatments can do just that. Plus, they are multi-trained and they are able to problem solve and address a multitude of uh, situations that may arise. In addition, I might be able to talk about it later, but very important, um, family interventions, jobs or school, are very uh, important interventions for people with co-occurring disorders. Families um, have to be involved. Way too often um, in our medical system, uh, families have been marginalized between HIPAA and just a historic wrong notion that somehow families are responsible for uh, people's mental illnesses or addiction, um, there's this tendency to um, eliminate people, uh, families from treatment as soon as people reach the age of um, legal independence. Um, families, though, are really the mainstay of treatment. Um, they're, they're very, very important. And um, uh, people's recovery really depends on their families and on the strength of the relationship with their families. Support employment, everybody wants to work and, you know, wants to work in a competitive employment. Competitive employment keeps people out of poverty and it's possible. Supported employment interventions are those where employer employment specialists uh, work closely with employers and with um, participants with the people with serious mental illness and addiction to find appropriate jobs and then support them in, in keeping them. All this in addition to a couple of things about the medical treatment. Um, medical treatment for people with psychiatric treatment for people with serious mental illness and substance use disorders has to have available the most effective psychiatric medications which um, are sometimes more difficult logistically to prescribe and uh, monitor, such as clausural and lithium. Medication-assisted treatment for substance use disorder needs to be uh, prescribed concomitantly from uh, buprenorphine to naltrexone or antabuse and um, other medications that help. These are not, of course, the only interventions, but uh, in conjunction with a number of psychosocial interventions, they, they are essential. Thank you for the sort of step-by-step -step approach that you have seen that is well-researched and integrated into the Westbridge program. So on the front end, I'm hearing you describe a process that starts with a residential stay. What I'm hearing us describe is probably someone whose situation is so acute and complex that taking them out of their current living situation is the wisest thing to do, placing them in a residential setting where perhaps that acuity and complexity can be both contained and they can perhaps maybe relax into at least a momentary sense of belonging. I can see that so clearly and the importance of that. And 
I compare and contrast that to sometimes the challenges of trying to deal with that level of complexity and acuity in a non-residential setting. So number one, I'm hearing you describe the residential step as key in offering the co-occurring disorder treatment. So Dr. Dahlia, what I'm discovering too is you're describing this process of assessment. Um, as we both know, you know, assessment sometimes occurs during very, very challenging, high stress times like a short-term hospital stay. And the information that comes out of that assessment is frankly sometimes wrong or incomplete. Did I hear you correctly that one of the outcomes of the first month at Westbridge is to have a much clearer, more comprehensive assessment? Yes, Virgil, absolutely. I believe that uh, you're, you're exactly correct. Many times diagnoses are, are just not correct. Uh, key aspects of diagnosis are possibly missed in such a short, acute stay. And psychiatric diagnosis just uh, means a lot of work of integrating historical information from records and family and um, doing, you know, a number of structured assessments, as well as a lot of clinical observation and interviewing and, um, you know, forming a therapeutic alliance with, uh, with the participant to get to the bottom of things. Plus, in people who have both mental illness and substance use disorders, the effects of the substances take a while to clarify, you know, some of the things you may be seeing as a um, healthcare providers are as a direct, a direct consequence of using or stopping substances. And that's not going to be very clear for a while. Assessment and accurate diagnosis, I think it's key. So what I'm hearing you also describe is that with co-occurring disorder, treatment, we can't really, in good conscience, limit this treatment only to sort of mood disorders, uh, because so often today, psychotic processes are a part of the challenges that people face. So one of the ways that I'm hearing Westbridge addresses this level of complexity is with full-time psychiatry, which is pretty unusual in a co-occurring disorder program. But that sounds like that's something that families should look for. Yes, I think so. Um, I mean, full-time psychiatry and also a psychiatry that is um, provided in integration with the team. You know, the team of um, care managers and other healthcare providers are the psychiatrists and uh, psychiatric providers ears and eyes on the ground, you know, they may end up uh, seeing the participant for hours in a day, having lots of interaction. And even if the psychiatrist is there full time, it's still there, uh, they're seeing the participant in a, in a glimpse of time. So there has to be that collaboration, um, that integration of care with, uh, with mutual exchange of information between the psychiatrist and the team. But I do think the psychiatrist on the ground a lot is key. Absolutely. Well, thank you for that. So you've described also that co-occurring disorder treatment, um, the fullest and most sort of evidence-based treatment includes medically assisted treatment. Some people in the addiction field sort of shy away from that. 
Can you help our listeners understand why it's important not to do so? I know. I, I know that uh, some people shy away from it. Um, I know the criticism. But, you know, the evidence is there. Um, and that is people who are treated with medication-assisted treatment are much more likely to achieve sobriety and stay in sobriety. That impacts that that impacts not only their quality of life and their family's quality of life and their future, but their life expectancy. You know, people are less likely to die when they're when they're treated. So, when we are um, faced, you know, with such important outcomes, I think that any other arguments are um, a little bit less significant. If people live longer and better, and this gives them a chance to restart their lives, uh, why not? You know, there, there are all kinds of ways of making sure that people don't abuse the substances that they're being prescribed, that um, if, if they do, you know, that means the addiction is not completely treated and they need better treatment than what they're receiving at that time. Every labs, you know, can be an opportunity to learn more and, and get better at managing it. I see how people, you know, have less cravings when they're treated with the right medications and why not help them that way. We treat any other illness that way. Uh, you know, when people have high blood pressure and then they get a headache because, you know, their blood pressure is up, Okay, we can tell them, you know, you have to drink more water and exercise and whatnot, and it's in your, within your power to do all that. But we also treat the high blood pressure, treat the biological basis of it, and help them out. Well, thank you for that. I'm sure that a lot of the listeners will be happy to sort of understand more deeply the importance of the medically assisted treatment. One other item before we go on, I was really keenly interested in how you describe uh, the family as being involved. You know, families so often, there are a lot of families listening to us, I think, too, and families so often feel excluded, but what you're saying is actually the opposite. How can they best be included? What kind of education can they get? How do you provide that for them? Well, Virgil, I think that the key to any change is to have a system for it um, and to be intentional start very early as soon as we meet you know the participant and their family start uh, engaging the family in a certain way that i'm going to talk about in a sec you know j just make it an explicit goal of treatment we always consider that the the unit of treatment is the participant and their family. So the families are from the very beginning involved in that, um, you know, they are asked what their goals for treatment are. Those, they, those goals don't supersede the participants' goals of treatment, but they count. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we talk about them all together. You know, we make sure that we get lots of information, historical information, because nobody knows the participant better than they do. And nobody knows better what they've been through than, than families do. And um, we, we try to access that information um, and use it to, to help the participant. I think that is very precious information. We have a systematic way of meeting with the family throughout the treatment from the first week, 
starting from the first week. And we have modules that we discuss. They're called, the, the book is called Family Education and Support. And it has to do a lot with uh, educating um, the family on mental illnesses in general, on substance use disorders in general, and on um, particularly, specifically, what the participant with their loved one um, is struggling with, with at that time. Those meetings can be separate with the family and the participants or all together. Um, we prefer when they're all together. Many times we need to discuss um, communication skills because, you know, when by the time the participants arrive, the, we call our clients, our patients, we call them participants. So by the time the participant arrives uh, to the program, many times their relationship with the, their family is strained. They've been through a lot of things. Substance use disorder and mental illness really strained relationship. Many times they have lost a good way of communicating. So we, we try to restart that, uh, make rules of uh, good, healthy communication, and keep everybody you know informed of everything that's going on. Of course, provided we have appropriate releases of information from the participant. We listen to the family's grief. We know that families have a lot of grief when they have a loved one with co-occurring disorder and they need help to heal as well. We have family mentors. We have families who have been through the program and who want to help other families. So they are becoming family mentors, just like we have participants who have been through the program and are now alumni and are mentors from, for other participants. There's a variety of ways, but families are always, always at the center of treatment together with the participant. And, you know, it may be hard at the beginning, but once that relationship is reestablished, it's an extraordinary motivator for participants to achieve recovery and to maintain recovery. Many times people have told me, well, I do it. It's a lot of work to maintain recovery, but I do it because the relationship with my family is so important. I now have it good again, and I don't want to change that. Thank you so much for that. I'm sure that many of the families listening will be keenly, keenly interested in what you've just said. You know, I'm hearing described, as you said, an evidence-based model or method of practice for addressing co-occurring disorders and I've heard recently that some of the outcomes achieved at the Westbridge program are actually adding to the evidence-based knowledge worldwide. There's an outcome study, I believe, that was recently published. Um, and I will let the listeners know that on the blog that will accompany this podcast, we will uh, make sure and have a link to the outcome study. Dr. Dahlia, can you tell us just a little bit about the outcome study, which seems significant? So we are proud and lucky to have third-party outcome study. Uh, this was published in the International Journal of Mental Health and Addiction. A team of researchers from Dartmouth, um, from Dartmouth College, um, came and uh, looked at our data. Um, our data from medical records, and then uh, interviewed participants and their families. Sometimes those who have finished the program two years prior. Uh, some were still in treatment or had just finished program the program and so forth. 
many times the, the participants had typically experienced multiple hospitalizations, episodes of treatment, school and employment disruptions, family distress and legal problems prior to coming to Westbridge. Um, so they look at this continuum of care, people going to residential treatment followed by the ACT treatment. And they found that participants who remain in treatment for at least one year, all combined, were much more likely to be in recovery. What does that mean, recovery? Recovery was um, defined in a complex manner on five different domains, um, mental health recovery, uh, substance use recovery, housing, work or school, and family and social relationships. And there were pretty complex scales uh, that were used to assess in each of these domains what recovery really means. So again, they found that people who remain in treatment for at least a year were much more likely to be in recovery in these domains and achieve recovery on more domains than those who had less than a year of treatment. Well over half of those who stayed in treatment were in recovery in which of the domains. So some from 60 to 90% almost were in recovery compared with 40-50% of participants who left treatment earlier. Uh, so we were very excited to see this. You know, we've always pushed for this longer duration of treatment because it seemed to us that it's absolutely fundamental um, that people spend a long time in treatment. Uh, they've had the, the illness is very severe. They had the illness for a long time, even when they're very young. And um, it takes this long to achieve true recovery. And we were very happy to see that this data confirmed it. Well, thank you very much for that. And again, for our listeners, we will provide a link to that research document, the research um, a publication on the blog that will accompany the podcast. So let's now turn to the second of three key questions. In the earlier uh, conversation, you described the importance of addressing physical health care as you are addressing the treatment of mental illness and substance abuse. I know that, Dr. Dahlia, you have strong concerns, deep concerns about stigma, and you pointed out that stigma keeps people with mental illness or substance abuse from getting, often from getting good comprehensive care and treatment for their physical health issues. Uh, can you please explain this and tell our listeners how they can break through this barrier of stigma how can they effectively advocate for their family member or patient, if they're a mental health professional, who may have physical issues that need to be addressed? This is an issue that is very dear to me. Um, I'm an internist as well as a psychiatrist, and I have spent many years uh, taking care of uh, people's medical illnesses. Um, and so I have seen, I, I feel like I have a deep understanding of how the system works. Um, over the last 10 or 15 years, we have been having data showing consistently that people with uh, serious mental illness and people with substance use disorders are more at risk of acquiring medical illnesses. In fact, when researchers examined mortality data for people with substance use disorder and uh, mental illness, they were surprised to see that most of it was due 
two usual medical illnesses that the general population gets, but people with serious mental illness and substance use disorders tend to get those medical illnesses earlier and in more severe form. We're talking about cardiac, respiratory, and metabolic diseases, but all chronic illnesses have higher rates in people with co-occurring disorders. This was a surprise when it first came out, and um, then repeated study continued to confirm this finding. It turned out that there are many factors involved, including possibly genetics, the direct toxic effect of substances of abuse and even of certain medications, poverty, poor nutrition, but also getting less medical care. Well, you know, initially they thought, yes, of course, people just don't get to the doctor uh, when they have uh, co-occurring disorders, and that may be true. Um, but even when they do, it appears that they're less likely to be diagnosed for their illnesses, to be treated according to evidence-based practices for the general population, and they're less likely to be offered aggressive interventions. So for example, several years ago, at the time when cardiac stents were the norm for certain types of uh, cardiac blockages, um, in this study, people with mental illnesses were just getting less of those for the same diagnosis. They were getting the same diagnosis, but weren't offered those, that intervention. In the end, might as well, because it turned out that's not a good intervention, but you know that it, it was also shown in general that you know, just usual medication, aspirin for people with diabetes or adequate control of diabetes with medication, that, that was not being achieved. And that's hard to know where people are getting less care that way. There are several explanations, and I'm adding to that, I'm adding to the data my personal experience. I think it's true that people go less to see the doctor. I think that it's true that people get lost to follow up. Um, it is very tough to navigate the medical system, even when you don't have a mental illness and a substance use disorder. For a provider, it's actually difficult to focus on the medical illness during that short appointment when mental, the mental health aspect or the addiction may be very prominent. There is also something that has been called diagnostic overshadowing, which means that a provider attributes a symptom to the mental health or to the substance use disorder in, instead of really working it out to figure out what medical illness can explain the, the, that symptom, right? So if somebody has um, stomach pain and very obviously is uh, depressed or has, or has psychosis, a provider might uh, tend to say that somehow the stomach pain is due to the depression rather than work it up to look for an ulcer. I saw that happening many times. Uh, in fact, I think many of us have heard the expression, it is in your head, and that's deeply stigmatizing. While psychological factors should not be by any means dismissed, the fact that they exist should be seen as a complicating factor, not an explanation of symptoms. If psychiatric comorbidity exists, that should be a signal to pay more attention to the medical illness, not less, because we know from the data that people are actually at risk for having more medical illness and more severe medical illness. How to address this? 
I think it starts with general rules about how to address stigma. Starting with the very basic, we have to use the right language, right? You know, you can't refer to people as their illnesses by saying someone is schizophrenic or someone is bipolar or someone is mentally ill because they're people and people are more than their illnesses. Um, we would refer to people who have an illness, just like we would with uh, people who have cancer or, or heart disease. We have to encourage storytelling. Uh, people shy away from asking people's survival from illnesses, especially mental illnesses. We need to cultivate kind curiosity and gently help people tell the stories because these are stories of survival. Um, a short example of that, one of our alumni who has been involved in advocacy work uh, went to the local police station to hold a talk about mental illness. His work is remarkable, but also what was remarkable was the response of the law enforcement officers who were amazed when they, when they saw him. They did not imagine that recovery is possible. They could not believe that he, his diagnosis was that of serious mental illness and serious addiction in recovery. They see people in acute states, they see people repeatedly maybe, you know, being locked in this acute, um, very difficult state, and they came to think that these are chronic states of dysfunction that um, are irrecoverable. That is obviously not true, we need a lot of education about that. Employment and community integration are also key variables reducing stigma. If people, you know, have regular jobs and live in the community, they are um, able to be known as people, not as mental illnesses, you know, and they, they have usual activities and usual social relations. We have to systematically encourage people with co-occurring disorder to have a regular primary care provider and get regular and preventative care. It really helps to get to know each other. It helps to get to know the provider and help the provider know you, not only when there's an acute problem, you know, just on a regular basis. Um, people need some help preparing the medical appointments. They have to keep focused and write down, write down issues. This is advice that is, is good for everybody, but especially when people may get distracted, you know, with symptoms of mental illness or addiction, or it's just hard to remember once you are in that short appointment under a lot of pressure, you have to have written down the issues, you know, what are the questions or the issues that you want to, to see addressed. And someone could help people um, make that list. They could also take notes during the appointment, make phone calls with them, help them keep a calendar and so forth. Um, I think very importantly is accompanying people to the medical provider and uh, advocating for them. Families can do that, but very importantly, talking about system, I think mental health care workers and nurses associated with mental health care centers need to do that because of their knowledge of the system and knowledge of the person. You know, they, are, they can be extraordinary advocates. So to not let that diagnostic overshadowing help, um, happen, to, to request, uh, you know, that the issue is being solved. Uh, to help maybe explain what the difficulties really are, and also to help uh, link the medical provider with the psychiatric provider. Uh, the systems don't talk to each other, you know. It may be that um, the medical provider and the psychiatric provider independently prescribe medications. They don't know what the other one is prescribing and so forth. This is a recipe for disaster, you know, and 
um, maybe mental health care workers can help bridge that system. Families and care managers uh, can become familiar also with the notion of self-management, which refers to all the things that one person has to do to live with an illness or a condition. So it has to do with having a regular sleep schedule, then having to get up at a certain time, do your finger stick, uh, drink enough water, take your meds, um, do a breathalyzer, call your doctor, call that. You know, there, there are lots and lots of things. And when people um, have several conditions, that self-management can get very complicated. There's a, almost a science that has been developed for how to help people with self-management. And that's called self-management support. Who can do that? Organizations can do that. Care managers can do that. Uh, nurses, psychiatric nurses can do that. Families can do that. You know, as I listen to you, I'm, I'm imagining the evolving stories as you see people in great distress entering day one, progressing through this system of care, and with your almost unique training across the sort of whole person, I can, I can see how the approach you're describing really helps to make the possibilities of recovery real and visible, uh, that storytelling you described of the person going to speak with the police. I'm thinking often they see, you know, only the crisis. And sometimes people working in a hospital see only the crisis. Uh, but thank you for bringing to mind in the minds of our listeners, uh, this awareness that recovery can indeed happen and does happen when you pay attention to the whole person, both the mental as well as the substance use disorder, as well as their physical health. Just going a step beyond the treatment considerations, uh, beyond addressing the issues of physical illness, mental illness, substance use disorder, what are the other factors that should be addressed in order to help someone both, you know, continue optimizing, but also sustaining their recovery? Well, thank you for this question. You know, so in addition to everything you mentioned, and of course, lots of wellness aspects as well, some of the social determinants of health are really crucial. I mean, people cannot recover if they don't have housing and they don't have a job. Um, or, you know, going back to school. The importance of housing, I can't overemphasize. You know, it's really hard to recover when one is homeless. The importance of job is really uh, crucial as well. Uh, I have literally seen uh, people with chronic mental illness, uh, with chronic symptoms, who have gotten a lot better, have gotten sober for years, uh, but had persistent symptoms. When they start working, all of a sudden, their symptoms are gone. I asked them about it. Oh, yeah, I don't think about that anymore, you know. So um, it's, it's literally part of treatment, uh, getting a job. So the IPS model is really helpful because people get linked to um, appropriate jobs, competitive jobs, real jobs. Uh, but, but, you know, the, in the IPS model, there is some behind-the-scenes support in getting a job or finishing their um, education, you know, completing college and then transitioning to professional roles. 
What I'm hearing you describe is that people with co-occurring disorder and sometimes physical health issues need what we all need, right? We all need a sense of belonging, a sense of purpose, and some resilience to help us get back on track if we get knocked off. And but you're describing a process that helps the most vulnerable that, you know, get knocked way off track. But still, you know, that idea of having a job, being able to awakening into a world that needs you or you can contribute, I can see how that's so healthy. So thank you for bringing that into the conversation. In the comments just before, you mentioned the self-management support and the IPS model. And what I'm hoping in the blog that accompanies this podcast that we can provide links to both of those so that our listeners can can learn more. Absolutely. Okay, good. Well, Dr. Dahlia, uh, oh goodness, we're running out of time. I'm just, I mean, Westbridge and those who participate in Westbridge as residents and families, I mean, they're so fortunate to have you as their medical director with your background and obvious commitment and, and knowledge of this. So, you know, I can imagine some of our listeners may have questions of you after listening. Is it okay that I give them your email so they might send questions? Yeah, absolutely. Please do. I'll be happy. And, you know, we're holding a 20th anniversary celebration for Westbridge. And as part of that, the participants and family stories will be shared in depth. These are stories of perseverance and courage, and um, there will be uh, links in our LinkedIn and Facebook pages, you know, for, for details. We can oh, that's, that's wonderful. We need those stories that can inspire us. Thank you for that. So if people want to reach you, uh, here is Dr. Dahlia's email. D like David, C like Charlie, I, M like Mary, P like Peter, E like Edward, A, N like Nancy, Hendrick, D-C-I-M-P-E-A-N, Hendrick, with a C-K at the end, H-E-N-D-R-I-C-K, at westbridge.org. Dr. Dahlia, any final words? Virgil, I just want to thank you very much for the opportunity to join your podcast audience, community of speakers. And thank you for all your efforts of uh, promoting awareness of good mental illness care and your advocacy work. Oh, my goodness. Well, you're most welcome, Dr. Daly. And I thank you again for joining us. And I also want to offer a special thanks to Larry Gentile. He is the sponsor of this podcast a friend and philanthropist whose mission has been to support effective treatment for co-occurring disorder. So thank you, Larry Gentile. And members of the audience, you may go to the blog on our website. The website is Virgil Stucker and spelled out associatesplural.com. And there you can read more about Dr. Dahlia's work, get a link to some of the models she describes, some of the outcomes research. So thank you again. This is Virgil Stucker, and I'm happy also to take any of the questions of the listeners as well. My contact information is on our website. And with that, Dr. Dahlia, I wish you and our listeners a very good rest of the day.
Thank you. You're as well, Rachel. Thanks.